Welcome to the Fundraising Leadership Podcast, where we engage in lively and thoughtful conversations with professionals in the nonprofit world. I'm David Landruly, and I'm here with my good friend and colleague, Margaret Katz-Can. Hey, Margaret. Hey, David. We have a lovely guest today, Margaret. It's Mark Vincent, who's actually joining us from Hawaii, where... He's on the big island where a volcano is erupting, so I'll invite him to – he's safe. (laughs) He's going from uh, Hawaii back to Idaho where he'll be digging out of uh, snow and firing up his wood stove. So we were talking before the podcast about he's going from molten rock to hot wood. (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. So welcome, Mark. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm glad to be with you both. Yeah. Thank you for joining us. And and thank you for your thoughtful article on listening as a leadership competency. And of course, you were addressing our audience, which is is um, slanted toward fundraising leaders. And so why don't you say a little bit about what's so important about listening? One thing that I find myself talking about with people who are a generation younger than I am is the surprise they feel to find out that as recently as 30 years ago or so, the dominant paradigm for leadership was that the leader talks and everybody else listens and the leader tells you what to do. And our listening is just to be to say how high. Uh, and uh, to rely and trust their expertise almost blindly. And uh, there are places that that still shows up, but the ship, particularly in Western culture, has largely sailed, and you can't get on that ship anymore, and that's a ship that's sinking. Mm. Uh, What we have in front of us is a a well-educated workforce in many ways, and if they're not well-educated, they may very well be highly skilled, uh, where they have worked their way into uh, very technical ways of working where they're going to know more about that than a supervisor is going to know or that a a leader of a whole industry that's three or four steps removed from them is likely to know. And if they've been out of that role, even if they started out there and they've been out for a few months doing other things, starting to lead, leading a whole production line, leading a whole company, whatever, they're not going to be the expert in that field anymore because there's just too much change happening all the time. So their competence to lead is going to come from walking around and listening and making connections and being able to be more mortar to all the bricks than they were when they were a brick in the organization. So, um, the ba- the basic thing about listening anymore is to really get yourself in a position where you're asking probing questions, where people are safe to give you answers that are real and authentic, so that communication is not blocked up and down the organization. And the way that that gets fostered is through deep and comprehensive listening, rearticulation, organizing what's there. So that it can be used elsewhere, yeah, uh, and communicated up and down. Yeah. The well, let me share with the audience why they should listen to you today. Because I stepped over something in the intro, and <laughs> uh, you're kind of an expert on this field because you've been working uh, with executives for many years. You uh, your work in process consulting and executive advising, and you have you facilitate 
groups of what you call maestro level leader cohorts, and maybe you can mm-hmm. you can share a little bit with the audience about what what that's all about in a moment. And you founded um, Design Group International, which is a, a community of practice built on process consulting, as well as the Society for Process Consulting. So you've been working with leaders for a lot of years um, from a a variety of angles, uh, both in uh, nonprofit organizations and corporations. And so you you do have something to say about listening. So I just wanted the audience to know that. And maybe you Mm -hmm. could share a little bit about this work that you're doing with leaders now and how listening, how you're finding listening come up in the, some of those uh, maestro level cohorts. I'm hoping also to um, to just help um, myself and others understand what process consulting means specifically. Yeah. Sure. Well, let me very briefly describe process consulting because it fits into what I've been doing with leaders of late. Process consulting is iterative rather than selling expertise. So the the consultant may have some very specific knowledge, but what they're doing is they're coming in and getting alongside the client. In this case, the client is both the inter- it's the intersection of the organization as well as those who are leading it with whom they're working. There's an interplay between the two. So the process consultant is getting into that and helping to iterate what's going on. So instead of saying, here's what you need to do, they're going to ask questions like, why is this important to even address? Why do you care? And if we were to really do something about it, who's going to play what role? And what's the criteria for success here? And you really start drawing out a line of sight from here to there, getting the client to declare not just what they need to do, but what they're willing to do. And to get it in writing or in some kind of expression right in front of them where they're saying, yes, that's what we want to do. Yes, that's what we mean. As opposed to, well, I can't see a reason why to argue with you since you wrote 10 books on this subject and you're the expert, but I really don't feel any commitment to doing it. Uh, that that becomes um, uh, a means of help by telling rather than by drawing out and getting ownership and client alignment around carrying it out. It has its roots in a lot of the writing of Edgar Schein from MIT, now in his 90s, built a long career looking at this, writing about it, developing all kinds of case studies, his books on process consulting, humble consulting, humble inquiry. I actually know a lot of fundraisers who have drawn off of humble inquiry or even the book helping that he wrote as examples of how they want to get alongside people and ask questions and draw them out and figure out what they care about, not just what I want to tell you and what I want to give you. Uh, and that's that's just the key difference. So on the one hand, we'll talk more and more now about what was traditional consulting as subject matter expertise or contracting work. Whereas consulting is getting in and thinking alongside or literally walking alongside, helping the client actually start to listen to themselves, uh, even as you're listening to them. So that, that's the key difference. We can certainly talk more about that. Uh, over the years, as I've worked with clients more and more, it became working with the chief executive officer or president or executive director, whatever that C-suite title was called for the person who had to run the organization, their team, and also quite often the board. And that's often where complex change, even if it's carried out elsewhere, is decided upon. 
So if we're going to do this adaptive change process, rebrand something, handle a succession plan, do a big fundraising campaign, any of those kinds of things, they are uh, decided at that C-suite level. And what I began to learn was that people who are very accomplished as senior executives were moving into this space when they could see the future value of the organization six, seven, eight years out that was coming toward them. They were not likely to be the person in the seat by the time that future came around. A big example right now that I like to use is General Motors. In 2035, they say we're going to be all electric and we're going to be all about increasing highway safety and reducing traffic deaths. That's what they say. Well, that's 12 years out now. And uh, in 12 years, the CEO and the board, the people who fill those boards, he's not, aren't likely to be the people running the organization then. Everything they're working on now is about that future that they are preparing the way for, but won't be leading once it arrives. And when those leaders get to that point, it's a very scary time and a lot of future value is lost. A lot of political game playing happens. There's a lot of ego battles. There are many good things that start to disintegrate because people start caring about themselves only or they're anxious and afraid. So what I've been doing is using process consulting as a base methodology to bring these leaders together into cohorts where they journey together for about four years while they get ready for that change. They develop a brand new job description for this period. They develop a future balance sheet. They create a map that they need to satisfy in order to move uh, responsibilities that they care about onto the shoulders of others and to do so successfully. And they also work at getting their leadership philosophy uh, more expressed and visible so that people can choose to embrace it or even reject it as opposed to it being tacit and, and folks having to guess at it. So it's a very deliberate step-by-step -step process across four years. Yeah. Well, I know several large nonprofit organizations who could use your help. I think we talked about that when you and I discussed you coming on. Yeah. They don't do this kind of work at all. No. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I love that it's um, it's future oriented and it sort of helps people understand their role as, you know, you're carrying the baton until you pass it off. Um, and mm -hmm. I love that both because it keeps people future focused, but in some of the work that I do, which is around helping executive directors claim their their compelling and their fundraising and the role that they play. It's trusting that uh, you're yeah. the person for yeah. now, you know, you're the perfect person right. for now. That's, you know, so hold on right. to like, what are you offering today that leads to perhaps mm -hmm. what comes after mm -hmm. you? It's a, mm -hmm. it's such a lovely big picture place to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, if you are in the audience and you are a uh, senior leader, uh, CEO, president, executive director, in a, in a nonprofit, then you're starting to think about, not, as Margaret said, not only your present role, but where the organization is going and you're starting to, you know, I hear a lot about strategic planning. I mean, this is just like twice warm over, warmed over bread to me. It's just horrible, you know, mm -hmm. and everyone gets, mm -hmm. uh, gets in this, but I, I like what you're saying here and I, I hope people will reach out to you. We'll, we'll certainly give, um, 
give them an opportunity to where they can find you because I think this is so important in the nonprofit world. They're not doing, I, I just don't hear people talking about this as much as I, I think, you know, many of your clients are coming from the, the corporate sector, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. We have we have two cohorts that are primarily businesses and have a nonprofit or two mixed in. Mm -hmm. And we just launched one this fall. It's a nonprofit focus and it has a couple of businesses mixed oh, in. Nice. We, we're trying to make sure that people aren't stuck with just one lens yeah. and hearing it only from like yeah. this one lane of of information and everybody's all, all boohooing into their handkerchiefs about things, <laughs> but rather to, to be challenged to see it with different eyes and, and hear it with different ears. Uh, the questions become so much more powerful and you quickly discover if you're able to communicate what you're thinking about or not, because you've got really intelligent people around the table with you uh, who are well-schooled. And if they're not getting it, that's, it's like, ding, ding, ding. Oh, I've got to refine what I'm talking about a little bit more. It's a lot of fun. A lot of fun. Yeah. One of my favorites. And somebody's like, I clearly said this and they didn't get it. And you kind of go, well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you had really been clear, right? <laughs> so yes, I'm curious, right. Mark, you know, you, you, um, and congratulations on this uh, earlier this year, mm -hmm. you published your book, Listening, Helping, Learning. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious when you you get into these cohorts and I assume you're facilitating, yes, um, you're doing yes. your process mm -hmm. consulting facilitation. Uh, how are you seeing these folks as listeners? Like, are you sharing with them um, some of the listening competencies you shared in your blog? What are you, what are you noticing? Uh, there are probably two items to mention that I'm noticing kind of first and foremost, I mean, they're just far and away above anything else. One is that, yeah, their, their pace of speaking and listening does slow down partly because we're taking the time they've signed on for a process where you take the time and it only takes a few of those meetings that you begin to discover that the quality of conversation and the decision to act actually speeds up mm. because we slowed down to be thorough and because we didn't just zero in and go char hard charging at something you're taking the time to completely hear what somebody's saying and then you're asking questions for clarification with a discipline before you move into well here's what i think you should do uh, and so as soon as you slow it down you get a deeper and fuller picture and then your response is going to be at a common view of the problem that you've all fleshed out the time that it takes to listen helps someone who thinks out loud distill what it is to the real problem. And for someone who thinks internally before they express it, it removes some of the edits that they made uh, thinking that nobody would care about this or whatever else. And the questions draw out the details that are needed for everybody to have a common picture. So you're slowing it down and people begin to trust it. So that that really starts to show up as one of the, the listening benefits. The second one that I would point to is that they actually begin to construct their own messaging with listening in mind, that they begin to ask people to tell them what they're hearing. So if I tell you this, or if I show you this, can you Tell me what's coming through to you. So I'm actually inviting you to listen to me and to tell me what you're hearing as opposed to react to me. And then I'll assume that I know 
what your reaction means, because now neither of us are listening. We're just talking to each other, talking across each other. So we see those things show up very quickly and strong, and it starts to show up in places beyond those cohort meetings that we have every month. They're carrying it back to their teams or taking it back to their marriages in some cases. Uh, <laughs> I know a few stories where it began to change the conversation with adult children mm. as well, and even children in the home. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Maybe could you just take us through you you do um you talk about these four um four different there's actively and comprehensively listening that you talk about in the blog. That was the first one. Can you just maybe scoot us through kind of what those mean and how they build on each other, which was where my curiosity mm -hmm. is. Well, let's recognize that when we listen and we're committed to listening, you know, taking coach training or something, and I'm gonna I'm gonna work at this now, we can get trapped observing ourselves listening, which means we're not listening because we're observing ourselves trying to listen and and we're getting this like washing machine watching ourselves outside our body. And the basic idea here is to get as inside our body as we can to be able and give ourselves a lot of grace. If we find ourselves moving away from listening, just to bring ourselves back and, and say, Hey, you know, you said something there. I got distracted or I saw a squirrel. I need to make sure I've got this, you know, can you, you bring yourself back to it, but it's, it's to be as fully aware as you can. And I like this phrase about pointing all of the antenna of your body to the source of information so that you can take things in. One of the things I've learned in my journey is that I am very much a body-centered person. So if I am turned away from you, the only thing I'm pointing in that direction is my ear. And that is not my primary way of taking in information. My primary way of taking in information is experiential. That's not true for everybody, but it is for some of us. So if I'm not facing, I'm not getting all of the data. So I work in trying to make my feet point in the direction of the source of my listening so that my whole body is facing in and I can listen then actively because my whole body is involved. And then I can listen comprehensively so that I get all of it. I might not remember all of it, but I will have experienced all of it. I will have taken in as much as I can take in and to let it be what it is to, to be able to say, is there anything more? Or this is what I'm hearing. Is there anything that I've left out? Or what else would you say about this? So that, that we're literally emptying the room out of this story that a person wants to tell. And by facing in and listening for it all, I am communicating to them that as a source of information, they are valuable. And that what we're working on is valuable. Uh, you can't do this in every conversation. However, there are many more conversations where we need to be doing it, like staff meetings, like family conversations, like strategic planning. And it means not that, okay, we take an hour and you just go talk and we're just going to sit here catatonic while you talk for an hour. It's framed up. There's an agenda. But when that information is coming, we're making sure that we've got it thoroughly and demonstrating that we understood it to the speaker's satisfaction. So they can say, yes, you've got me. Otherwise, we're assuming that we heard it. We will get 15 minutes in and then we'll discover, no, we didn't get it all. And now we've got to circle back and go around. And sometimes, especially if somebody really cares about their message, now their feelings are hurt or they felt invalidated or they are saying to you, I told you, you weren't listening to me. Mm -hmm. And now you got to work through that. So now you're going to take three times as long. 
to, to get to be able to move forward. So that's what the active and comprehensive listening is, is facing it, bringing your full self and drinking it dry. Yeah. I, I love I, the, the, the application to family, you know, is, um, is so fascinating to me with, you know, with cell phones as part of the conversations and, yeah. Right. You know, um, some yeah. people multitasking and yeah. Right. And one thing we know from neuroscience is a human being cannot multitask. Right. And what we know about the about different gendering of this is that women are better at vacillating between selective attention than men are on the whole. But it doesn't mean that women can multitask. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It just means that we're switching back and forth. We're changing channels. And as soon as we're changing channels, we're skimming the top. We are not facing the information and getting the full information. You also said something in the in the blog post about um, like, I'm paraphrasing and you can correct me if I'm wrong here. Like your, your intention, like you, you were framing a, a, a fundraiser going into a, a, a donor meeting and sort of this listening at a, at a surface level of transaction, that's the way you described it. And I think, um, especially for uh, newer fundraisers in the field it, um, who are being driven by, by metrics, that those conversations can very quickly, if not immediately, descend into, you know, transactional listening <laughs> and speaking. Yes. And then, um, so... And you said something about like going in with an intention. Where, where where does intention like you said something like going in with the intention of of, of relationship? I'm, I'm paraphrasing you. So where does intention live in this listening? It's interesting. I could answer this in two different directions. If I just talk about it as relationship, okay. So people matter. People are the donors. Uh, and if all I see is a gift rather than a person, then I am going to use them, even if it's for noble reasons. I will use them and they are likely to feel used or they will see me as a means to do what they want, which means now I'm just something mechanical and it's not a real and trusting relationship. Uh, and one of the things that sometimes happens if we if we view it that way is that you have a, um, oh, um, I think you use the word metric. So you're, you're tracking against what's my total. And I'm not thinking about you as a lifelong giver. And so if I come to you and you can give me a thousand dollars this year, uh, and you're going to actually give me a thousand dollars for 30 years or a $30,000 gift right now, I, I go for the $30,000 gift right now. Uh, as opposed to that thousand dollar gift across 30 years, which then becomes an estate gift on top of that. It becomes, you know, other ways of volunteering and it grows over time. And then your kids get involved or something like that. So uh, seeing it as what's this relationship, where is it going? Where's your heart? And that, that part uh, really matters. But the other side of this that we, we could look at is if I am coming, not just for the person where they're at, but that person and where they're going. 
What's developing in them? What do they dream about doing? What does legacy look like for them? What what is what is their intention for their family? What what do they most want to give their heart to? What's their sense of vocation? Uh, what's the center of their growth? And I'm 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 getting into that with them, sitting inside their skin, so to speak, um, where where we're beginning to talk about that. Now, it's not about what I've got on my menu back here of things I'm hoping a person would give to. Uh, We're now starting to dream together about that person's future and their connection to that organization and looking for those intersections out here, which is forward-looking and builds over time. And now you've got a a trusting relationship where they're going to be happy to see me and me, them, even if a gift is not in the offing when we're getting together for coffee the next time. Uh, It's all groundwork for their life uh, as a steward and as a generous person then at that point. Yeah, well, we're listening. (laughs) We're listening. We're digesting that. I was also curious. I was also curious. um, I wanted to hear your... uh, Margaret and I um, do a lot of work around um, intuition as a mode Mm. of listening. And I'm curious as to sort of which... Uh, uh, competency, where you would put intuition in in your competency model, and how have you? How important is that? The reason why we wrote the book, listening, helping, and learning, was a way to get the core competencies of process consulting out there, which is we sometimes say a coachative approach to consulting, and sometimes we would say um, that executive coaching is going to sometimes have to have some kind of consultative overlay because so much of the application is not going to just be in the person. It's going to be carried out organizationally. So there's a nice kind of overlap between the two. And so listening is done so well, if we're getting more practice at this, that the client is actually joining us in the listening. They're now listening to themselves. Uh, because we're asking questions, we're asking about what they mean, and now it's starting to drop. So this way, the helping part, the actual working forward, is something that's done together. Instead of the consultant helping the client, the consultant is alongside the client as the client is choosing what kind of help they're going to participate in, that they will bring themselves to. This is especially helpful in adaptive changes. And just, I don't, I don't want to, you know, go over this a hundred times. People know this really well, but just to be clear, technical change is this known problem and known solution. And subject matter expertise works really well there. Adaptive change is an unknown solution for a problem that's often just emerging and may not have a lot of definition on it yet. And now you've got to experiment and try. I have a friend that says, here's the difference. Technical change, flat tire, change the tire, drive down the road. Known problem, known solution. Adaptive change is a flat tire four days in a row. You don't know what that is. You've not seen it before. You may have to eliminate some other problems in order to get at the real ones. So and help, you're in that kind of a situation where you're working through a complexity to figure something out. Out of that, you're able to ask this question, what do we have here? What might we do? Just this week, I was my wife was telling me about a story she read about Netflix. 
where this whole thing about binge television watching started there when they had some old television show they were uploading. Instead of doing it one a week, they had the whole thing. They just uploaded all eight of them. And binge watching kicked in. They did not plan for that. They were somebody's just getting the way the story's told. Somebody's just getting something off their to-do list. And they stopped long enough to say, hmm, this wasn't expected. What might this mean? And now I have this whole phenomenon of every network uploading a whole season all at once. That's a what do we have here? Well, the answers to what do we have here is where intuition often comes in. We're going to take a guess. We're going to play a hunch. I'm going to wonder if. What would this look like if? And the if kinds of questions come. You're still listening. But you're able to you know, kind of put something out there to help change somebody's frame of reference, to turn lights on in another room that maybe we've not been explored before without providing the answer, but bringing the question so that you know the attention turns and changes over to this new set of possibilities. And it doesn't matter if I see something, it matters if they see something. So it's not me saying, I see five things here, what do you want to do? It's more a matter of, Hmm, I wonder what would happen if you went down this road. What do you think you could see? And often they'll see things I never would see because they're much closer to it. It's their business. It's their life. Uh, but that's that's where I think intuition shows up its strongest uh, when when you're actually now starting to face forward out of this common work that you've done together. Yeah, well, there's... I think. Oh, go ahead, Margaret. You got a you got there's a cool just a, question. Um... A piece, I love this and it's so, um, it's just, it feels so luxurious and um, I'm just kind of, my intuition is there are fundraisers who are listening, who are saying, you know, that's all well and good, but like, I need money for this, you know, and I need it by this time. You know, there's so many metrics and pressure and how do you, how do you fold those things together where you, there is oh, really a specific big... thing that you need money for. And, yeah. you know, it's, um, yeah. yeah. Any thoughts or it's, uh, well, yeah. And I, we haven't talked about this, but my history starts in fundraising and I grew up in a fundraiser's home. Um, and so the people who were around our table that were visiting guests from out of town were people who, you know, they were estate planners and they wrote things to help estate gifts be given and they were tax attorneys and all that. So I, I mean, this is stuff that I've been around my whole life and watched how things have evolved. And so this debate of whether you're institutional centered in your fundraising or you are person centered in your fundraising, that is not a slice of bread that you can cut precisely because the person is going to connect to the institution and back again. I like to use the analogy of a train sometimes where one of these is the engine and the other is the car that gets pulled along behind. And to choose that it's institution-centered, I think it's helpful to be honest about it, to be able to say, we are about this mission and this institution, and if you're going to join us, you join us, but that's what it's about. It takes a lot of games out of it, mm -hmm. and it, it's a way to get some things done. I think we lose a lot of creativity. I think we lose our partnerships when we do that, but at least it's, it's, there's no gamesmanship mm -hmm. happening. Mm -hmm. right. The other approach that says we are person centered, 
We're going to start with the donors. We're going to start with them and their hearts. We're talking because we think there might be a connection. Our stuff here that we care about institutionally, we're not going to hide that. It's right here. But what we need to do is match you to where your heart goes, because we believe there's a faith kind of element in this. We believe that that will keep you with us, bringing your gifts, not just your money, bringing your brain corpuscles and neurons, not just the fruit of your past work, you'll bring those gifts uh, going forward and it can lend itself to uh, an openness to change. If we're threatened, however, like, no, 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 we've got our plan. We don't want anybody messing with it. Then you don't want to start with this. You know, I want, I care about you, but I really don't. <laughs> so I, of, love, kind of I love what you're saying here, because when I was, uh, and I would also like Margaret to weigh in from her experience, but yes, when, 10 years of major gift work uh i would hold these seeming it's it's a seeming paradox but it's a seeming contradiction or a paradox but it's really not it's a both and it's a both and is really what it is so you know i uh you know yes you're hired by an institution to raise money for certain priorities that's the word that's used um and donors have their own priorities. And so to your point earlier about relationships, so long as you come with the intention of relationship, then the, the priorities of the institution actually change over time. And I would see this, you know, new administration comes mm-hmm. in, new president, new strategic plan, new priorities. So now all of a sudden, you know this donor so well that in three or four five-year cycles, all of a sudden now, the institution has a priority that matches the donor's interests. And you're the person who can make this match. It's just, it's so beautiful when it happens. But it would not happen. It does not happen unless uh, uh, you're coming at it uh, with this both and. Like, like, yes, the institution Mm -hmm. has priorities. And yes, the owner has, the donor has uh, his or her um, priorities or interests. So you have to you have to always mm-hmm. hold those together. In my experience, but mm-hmm. I want to hear Margaret's yeah. take on that. Yeah, I, I'm going to yes and and I certainly when I, you know if I was working with somebody as a fundraiser talking about a legacy gift, you know there's there is space and time and theoretical and luxury. But I guess I'm going to say I feel like there's there's a lot more real estate, a lot more space, even if you are doing something that looks more like institutional centered fundraising to ask donors, what's your experience? How did this gift feel? You know, what did we do that felt good to you? What did we do that gave you a stomach ache or made you, you know, put down that pen or, you know, so there's, there were a lot of questions that could be asked to, um, Mm -hmm. you know, to, to get the donor into the conversation that looked very different from a a pitch or a song and dance. So I think I I completely agree Yeah, that, that, they're both are going to be present and you're going to be balancing them out. One element we want to think about is who owns that relationship. And I believe there's a bit of an irony. Uh, Nobody of course owns the relationship. Nobody owns the donor, but when there is a highly relational mode happening and a lot of listening and a lot of genuine care, if that fundraiser fundraiser leaves, the donor is very interested in where that fundraiser is going. And the relationship, more often than not, 
follows the fundraiser. Um, it not always, but it so often does. And that's because of the um, exchanges, the human exchanges between those two people, uh, connection at a heart level. Mm -hmm. And when you are completely transactional or driven almost exclusively by a transactional approach, you're not listening, you're telling, you're offering information. If I'm asking a question, I'm asking it because I'm looking for that thing to connect you to the gift that I'd like to ask you about. At that point, if um, I leave and another person steps in, it's a complete reset mm -hmm. uh, in almost every case. So that that's one thing that I think tilts it, not to separate them and divorce them, or not to say that there's a modulation between them, but to sort of choose for the long run that the equity in the relationship is what matters and what leads as opposed to just did we get something so that our current budget year was met at the expense of a future gift. Yeah, you are pointing at something that um, is near and dear to my heart and is a huge issue in the fundraising profession since this is where the podcast mm -hmm. has gone called Turnover. This is, mm -hmm. uh, this is like... It's a not so dirty little secret, but this just haunts the um, the profession. Turnover haunts the profession. It uh, mm -hmm. because the best fundraisers have the most intimate relationships with donors, and when they leave, um, it's it's like a divorce. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like it's it's messy. But that would yes. be a topic of a whole other podcast. So uh, <laughs> uh, we've we've covered a lot of ground here and it went definitely in a direction I wasn't expecting. So thank you for that. But we, we do like to give the audience something to try. And I think you have something in Mark uh, in mind, Mark. <laughs> so why don't you give them something to try around listening, something they can go put sure. into practice. Well, when folks dive into these competencies about listening, uh, it can start to be overwhelming because, you know, I'm working so hard just to to stay attention attentive to the conversation to even begin thinking about like we didn't talk about it, to start listening architecturally uh, for how you might render a process and listening uh, how do you adapt in the middle of things. I don't know if I can get there, and it's, it starts to be overwhelming. So. It's a matter of how do you start very simply and see listening competency grow almost explosively right away. And I'd like to suggest two very simple questions that you can ask somebody. So someone comes, someone who works with you, a donor, someone who supervises you or whatever, and they've got a story to tell you. That turn, square up, focus in, listen. And when they're done speaking to ask, is there anything else? Do we have it all? That what else question is so fun once you begin to observe it, because people will often say, no, but, and then they tell you something else. And then ask what else again? Is there anything more? Have you said everything? No, I think that's it. Except that. And then they tell you something else. And you, you ask that two or three times. It's a way to keep you listening to the point that the person finally will say, no, I think that's about it. Mm -hmm. But invariably, the most critical pieces of information, I think sometimes subconsciously are kind of withheld here. 
And when someone asks what else, oh, you're really listening to me. Here it is. And it's not necessarily a conscious choice, but there's this extra stuff that really fills in the gaps and the holes and you get more context and deeper understanding just by asking as a habit, anything more here? Have you said it ever? Have you said it all? That kind of thing. One other one is uh, we've touched on it a little bit, but when you're actually working at something with people and now you have a result. So let's put it into a fundraising context and that'll give you the question. Uh, let's say I'm a solicitor for something and we've raised uh, a gift uh, or we're working on a campaign together. And uh, let's let's say here, um, Margaret, that you gave to this campaign. And now I'm meeting with you and we're talking about what happened because of your gift. And I'm saying thank you. And the institution is saying thank you to you. To take the time to say, what do we... What do we have here? Or what have we discovered here? Or do we have any insight out of this? Or what's this saying to you? Or what does this make you think about? That that what what do you notice? Or what do we have here kind of question is where a lot of discoveries and new insight comes from and new ideas come from that pave the way to something that we can't even see yet because our hearts are turning in that direction. So the front end of conversations, you know, what else? Is there anything more? And more towards the work as it starts to unfold, to be able to say, what are we discovering? What do we notice? Let's take this moment, not just to say thank you, but to observe how the landscape's changed and to notice and to say, what might we make of this? This is where all the new to the world stuff comes from, because people took time to observe instead of rushing past it to go to the next plan that was written a year ago. So those two very powerful questions are something people can stick in their pocket, right on the back of a card or whatever until it gets down into the neural pathway. When somebody's telling me something before I react, I can ask, is there anything more? Uh, there'll be other questions I can ask, but it puts me into the curiosity mode before I'm just reacting uh, and saying what I think. Sounds great. So it sounds like, right, get the Sharpie out, write the two questions on the right. palm of your hand before your next meeting. Yeah. 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 Well, thank yeah. you, Mark. It's been a um, deep listening conversation. <laughs> I was going to use the word scintillating. Oh, scintillating. Oh. oh, wow. That is the vocabulary word of the week, Margaret. Thank you. It has <laughs> it been <is> now. <laughs> it has been scintillating. Thank you. Thank you for the scintillating conversation, Mark. Uh, your book is called Listening, Helping, Learning. It's a great book for um the fundraisers in the audience, frontline fundraisers, and also um, the nonprofit leaders in the audience. So we're going to put a link to that in the show notes so that folks can uh, know where to get that on Amazon. And I'm going to bring it home now. And so as I do that, Margaret, is there anything else? What else? <laughs> um, I... I think we might need a part two because there's a lot there's a lot in these ideas i think it's going to okay. take me a little well, while maybe. to process everything we talked about well that's why they call it process consulting now that's that just a little side <laughs> joke well look this podcast is uh bought, brought to you by fundraising leadership we provide unique coaching and training programs to grow nonprofit leaders please subscribe if you haven't already done so you can find us wherever you listen to podcasts if you're enjoying the show, you can help us 
continue to bring thoughtful content with a one-time contribution. This supports our production costs and keeps the show ad-free. If you contribute using the link in the show notes, you will receive one or more of our highly acclaimed online courses. So now, go put it into practice. Curious.